0: I want you to picture the woman in our story today, every day, two to three times a day, carrying this jar outside of her home, outside of her town to a nearby well, and then carrying it back full of water, perhaps carrying five, six, seven gallons of water day after day, week after week, year after year, making the same journey out of her town to the well, throw a bucket down in the well, pull the bucket up, pouring it into her jar, taking her jar, throwing it on her shoulder, or on her head, and then carrying it back into the town and back into her home. But this day was different. This day wasn't like every other day. When she came out to draw water on this day, things were not like they normally were. This time, things would be totally different. It was going to be a day when her entire life would be changed. And it all started with a conversation that she had with someone she first calls a Jew, then she calls him Sir, later she calls him a prophet, and then Messiah, and then with the entire town, they call him the Savior of the world. See, she met Jesus at that well. Today our story takes place in the book of John and in chapter 4 and Jesus, it starts out telling us that Jesus had been in the area of Judea where he had been doing some ministry and uh, he kind of upset the religious leaders, the Pharisees, Um, and uh, so he had to leave town in a hurry. They were plotting against him and he was headed to Galilee And, and in getting to Galilee, he doesn't go the normal route, the normal way to Galilee, you would normally go through Jerusalem but instead, he goes around and through Samaria in order to get to Galilee. And, and, um, and getting there, he comes to a town called Sakkar. And uh, they were exhausted, him and his disciples. They've been traveling all night, all day, depending on the timing of the story. And when they get to this well, and it's a pretty it's biblically and historically significant well. It's the well of Jacob. Jacob from the Old Testament, our father Abraham, and his son Isaac, and Isaac's son Jacob. This is that Jacob, his well. And when they get to that well, Jesus sends his disciples into the town of Sakkar to buy some food. And then Jesus, who's just exhausted from the journey, takes a seat and leans himself up against the well. And here comes this woman with her jar making her everyday journey. I need you to know there was this massive chasm that separated this woman Jesus. It was a massive social and and religious chasm. First, she was a woman and in the ancient world and still in many Middle Eastern circles today, women were considered second-class citizens and it was custom for men not to talk to women. Matter of fact, husbands couldn't even speak to their own wives in public But the second huge factor that separated these two was the fact that she was a Samaritan and he was a Jew. It was a racial and a religious prejudice. Jews did not associate with Samaritans. They would avoid them all, avoid all forms of social contact with them. It would have put any Jewish man in a legal procedure crisis to be seen, especially be talking with this woman. But Jesus flings this bridge of human need across this vast chasm, and he breaks the taboo and he takes the initiative and he starts this crucial conversation. John chapter four and verse seven. Jesus says to her, "Will you give me a drink?" Only if this woman knew who he was, right? But all she recognizes is this is not right. He's breaking so many customs, so many laws and norms. And so the Samaritan woman says to him, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan woman, how can you ask me for a drink? And then the Apostle John, who's writing this book, writes in uh, in the parentheses, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans to let you and I know how unexpected and how abnormal of a thing this was. This is what Jesus does over and over. He breaks down social barriers and he also elevates women. He does this all throughout the gospel. Everything you and I know about Jesus, it shouldn't surprise us that he starts this conversation. He doesn't care about the social norms. He has a deep, keen and and compassion for for people regardless of whether they be a man or or a woman and despite their ethnic or, or racial background. And when she responds in shock about why he would talk to her, he clarifies perhaps why he would reach out in the first place. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now the emphasis is on the living. Literally, the original text says water, the living kind. See, this conversation here is taking an interesting turn. Up to this point, we're talking about physical water water. The woman came out to Jacob's well to draw water. Jesus asked for a drink because he was thirsty. Water. But when the woman wonders why Jesus would talk to her and Jesus responds, he he changes the conversation to something much deeper and something much higher. Jesus is no longer talking about physical water. He's talking about living water, a gift of God, a, a spiritual water. And in his response, he reveals a little bit about who he is, but the woman doesn't catch it. Notice this. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where will you get this living water? Remember, emphasis on the living. Where will you get this water, the living kind? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it, as did also his sons and his livestock? Sir, she says, how are you going to get this water? You don't even have a bucket for this well. How are you going to get some kind of living water? But when Jesus was talking about living water, he he wasn't talking about this. He was actually talking about himself. And we know this to be true because later in the book of John, just a few chapters over, John in chapter 7, he says this in verse 38. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. See, it's believing in and on Jesus. That's the living water. But the woman wasn't thinking like that. First, she just came out to the well just to get some water. And then this man, a Jewish man at that, begins to talk with her. So for her, when she hears living water, she's thinking about water that's moving, like water from a river or water from a stream, as opposed to this water that's in the well that's still. And so no wonder she questions Jesus. Sir, you don't even have a bucket for this well. Where where are you going to get some kind of water, living water? And so Jesus clarifies himself and he answers in John 4 and 13, everyone who drinks this water, the water from this well, they'll be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give them, they will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up into eternal life. Ah, wouldn't you like to have a taste of that water? Remember, Jesus is in the heavenly here. He's having a spiritual conversation, but the woman's not. She doesn't catch it. She's having a physical conversation. She doesn't understand how it's possible. Even though she doesn't understand, she still has some kind of confidence in Jesus because of the way she responds to Jesus. She said to him, sir, give me this water, the living kind, so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Give me this water. I'm tired of day after day making this same route to come to this well to draw water. And perhaps it's here that the woman reveals a little bit about herself. That she doesn't like coming to this spot, coming to this well to draw water. But why? Why doesn't she like coming here? Perhaps it's just a superficial thing. Uh, This is a laborious job to carry this jar back and forth from the town to the well and then back into the town full of water. But maybe there's something a little deeper, something more below the surface. Perhaps there's a symbolic weight in coming here to the well to draw water. In order to see this, I want you to notice what time of day the woman comes to the well. And in order to see that, we'll have to go back up to verse 6 of chapter 4. And John tells us it was about noon. It was the sixth hour of the day in the heat of the day. See, the timing of this woman coming to the well, it, it's kind of a strange time. And she's also coming out by herself. Going out and drawing water would have likely been done with a group of women. Not, not traveling by yourself, but she's alone. Why is that? Well, this is part of where a character is revealed Perhaps this woman is more than just an outcast because of her gender and her race. Perhaps she was an outcast even among her own people, shunned by the other women of the town. And that's a likely scenario because her past is revealed in these next exchange of words. In verse 16, Jesus told her, go, call your husband and come back here I have no husband, she replied, and Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you're with now is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. This woman has had five failed marriages and is now living with a man. Five failed marriages, and she's now on her sixth. Do you tend to avoid people who've had a rough past? Don't. Jesus doesn't. He reached out to this woman in her desperation. And you and I should likewise notice the needs of others and respond with compassion. See, This woman wants to be given the living water that Jesus offers because she doesn't want to have to keep coming back here. It's a laborious and trying job to do day after day. And there's also this emotional weight to it. She makes this trek alone, only reminding her of her past. She knows that the other women in the town are talking about her. So, of course, she cries out in desperation. Sir, give me this water, this living water, so that I won't have to keep coming here to be reminded of my shame. And Jesus says, when she cries out for that water, go, call your husband, come back here. He's ready for her to deal with her past. He's ready for her to taste of that living water, to believe in him. But first, they need to deal with her living situation. And she responds with words, try to trick Jesus. I I don't have a husband. But Jesus knows. Jesus knows her story. He, He knows her past. And it's true. He knows. He knows everyone in here. He knows our story. And oh, doesn't he know? Now, it can be a raw and painful thing to know that God knows everything about us. But there's something yet, at the same time, beautiful to know that God knows everything. He knows the good things about us, the not so good things. He knows the things that we do in the dark when no one else is around, when no one else is looking. And He wants to bring those to light to deal honestly with them. And it's true of this woman at the well. Jesus wants to expose this woman for who she is so that He can make her into a worshiper. And He wants that for you and me. But much like you and I are not ready to let go of our past... She wants to dodge this topic as much as possible, and so she changes the conversation completely. Notice what she does in verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. You, you know my past. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you, Jews, claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Wait a minute, are, are they talking to each other? See, th- this woman just changes the subject, goes in a totally different direction. You ever, ever had this happen to you? You're having a conversation with someone and and perhaps it's a religious conversation. You're talking to someone about uh, the the fact that we've sinned and that we're in need of a savior and and you're talking about their situation and and they just don't want to talk about that. And so they change the topic and say, well, what about the people who never heard about Jesus? What's God going to do with them? See, They want to push you into an argument that Christians have against the rest of the world. And that's exactly what this woman's doing. She doesn't want to deal with her situation. And so she gets into this age-old argument that the Samaritans had with the Jews. See, the Samaritans say that we should worship at Mount Gerizim, and the Jews say we should worship in Jerusalem. Which one is it, Mr. Prophet? Now, before we go any further, I want you to notice two things here. The first thing that I want you to notice is what she calls Jesus. She calls him a prophet. Now, earlier she called him a Jew, And even in this text here, she's calling him Sir. But she knows that he's more than just a Jew. He's more than just any other man. He is a prophet of some kind. And so her understanding of who Jesus is is changing and it's growing as this conversation continues. But then the second thing I want you to notice is, that although she changes the topic completely, just it completely ignores what Jesus says, Jesus doesn't respond and say, wait, wait, wait a minute. You changed the topic on me. Let's go back and deal with your living situation. No, no, no. That's not what Jesus does. He goes with her and he says this woman in verse 21. Believe me, a time is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We Jews worship what we know. And that's true. The Jews were given the revealed word of God. They worship what we, they know. For salvation is from the Jews. That's true, right? Jesus is a Jew. He's from that lineage of Israel. But the hour is coming, and it is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and He's seeking people to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Now, Jesus doesn't directly answer the woman's question because His answer is not concerned with the place of worship, but with the nature of worship. In other words, Jesus is saying that age-old argument about where we should worship, it's about to be null and void because there's coming a time, the times now, And it won't matter where you worship as long as you worship in spirit and in truth. Now, I want to ask the question real quick of what that means. What does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? It's not the main point of my message this morning, but the text deals with it, and so I want to spend some time there. Concerning worship in spirit, I like the way one author puts it. He says, If God is spirit, and he is, that's what the scripture says, he's not confined to things. God's not an idol. He's not made up of something. Right. He's not made up of some physical thing. He's not confined to things. If God is spirit, he goes on. God's not confined to places. That's also true. God is omnipresent. He is always everywhere. If God is spirit, a man's gift to God must be gifts of the spirit. True and genuine worship is not to come to a certain place. It's not to go through a certain ritual or or liturgy. It's not even to bring certain gifts. True worship is when the spirit, that is the immortal and invisible part of man, speaks and meets with God who is immortal and invisible. What he's saying there is this, that you and I, human beings, we have two parts, First, the physical part, the flesh, the body, the part that we can see. But we're also creatures made up of spirit, immortal and invisible. You you can't see our our spirit and it's immortal. We were created to live forever. Now, God is spirit. He's not made up of physical things. And so when we worship him in spirit, we worship with the part of us that most closely associates with him, our spirit spirit. In other words, we don't worship, our worship is not of material things. You can't measure worship in the spirit. That's why the woman who brings just two small coins can be said to have the the, the greatest generosity, because it wasn't about the things, it was about her heart that she gave everything she had. But it's not just worship in spirit, it's also worship in truth. Now, this means that we must worship based on the truth. We can't worship things that are false. And when we worship, we must make sure that we are worshiping in accordance with the revealed word of God. For example, when we sing our songs, our lyrics, the lyrics that we sing must be biblically accurate. We can't sing words that would contradict the clear teachings of Scripture, that wouldn't be worshiping truth. But also in, in every other form of our worship, whether that be in giving or in serving or in prayer, we must be conscientious of, of what we're saying and what we're doing, that it too is in truth. See, it's not about the physical, geographical place, it's about the nature, the heart of worship. But the woman is about the physical. What geographical, physical location must we worship in? And once again, Jesus takes her to the spiritual and says, worship is in spirit and in truth. His words bring shock to the woman, but they also shed a little bit more light on who he is because the woman says this next in verse 25, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. She begins to talk about Messiah. Now, in her mind, Messiah means like prophet or or teacher. So it's pretty close to what she had already called him. For a Jew, when they thought about the word Messiah, they were thinking warrior king, someone who would come into Rome and and take over the throne of Caesar and and bring peace for uh, the, the Jewish people. And you and I know Jesus, who is Messiah. That word means anointed one, by the way. We know that he is a great teacher, We also know he's a king of kings. He is a warrior king, not in the sense that the Jews thought in the first century. But we know he's much more than that. We know he's the Christ, the Lord of all creation, and that he's the savior of the world. See, this woman's understanding of Jesus is growing and growing. And then Jesus leaves her with an even more shocking and revealing truth. Jesus declared, verse 26, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. I'm the one. Last, Jesus reveals who he is to this woman. See, every turn of this conversation has unfolded Jesus' wonderful personality. When at last the all-sufficiency of Christ is magnificently revealed in this last statement, I am He. I'm the one. I'm the Messiah. And then I love how she responds. Let's read on in verse 27. Just then the disciples return, We're surprised to find Him talking with a woman, but no one asks, what do you want or, or why are you talking with her? So here He is. He reveals who He is. I'm this Messiah. I'm the one talking to you. I am He. And, and right then His disciples come back with the food And all of them see this shocking, surprising situation. Wait a minute. Why is Jesus talking to a woman, a Samaritan woman? But no one dare say a thing. But what I want you to catch is what the woman does. Then leaving her water jar, leaving her water jar, the woman went back into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. She leaves this, this water jar at the well. Now, this is a subtle note. And if you're just reading through this scripture quickly, you're, you're going to miss this. But this is a significant statement because the whole reason this woman came out in the first place was to draw water, to, to, to get water from the well. But she's leaving that behind. I doubt she was aware of the fact that as she was walking out to the well, that this conversation she was going to have would shake her To the core. So why does she leave it? Was it a symbolic depiction of her making a a break from her previous life to pursue a life with Christ? Maybe. Perhaps she just hadn't filled the jar yet and she was going into the town. She would tell the people, come back, and, and she would fill it then with the rest of the town there. Or was it that she forgot the whole reason she came out to the well in the first place? Because this conversation with Jesus would change everything for her. I love the way the the late Dr. R.C. Foster put it. He said this, someone has called the water pot, her jar, left at the well curb, beside the well, the unconscious pledge of her return. She came with a water pot seeking water from Jacob's well, but when she left, her water pot was forgotten. She's now consumed with thirst for the living water. And I believe that's what his word is calling us to today. To leave our water pot at the well curb and be consumed with the living water. And I'm not talking about a physical water pot. I'm not talking about the water that we drink. I'm talking about anything that's keeping you from receiving the living water that Jesus offers. Anything that you're holding on to, that's binding you, that's burdening you, that's weighing you down, anything that's leaving you empty. Maybe it's a sin. Something you keep coming back to over and over, expecting that thing to to bring you satisfaction and fulfillment. A sin of greed, of lust, of pride, of, of envy, of jealousy, of rage, of arrogance, of disobedience. A sin you commit in the dark. It's time to lay that at the feet of the only one who can do something with it. And don't think that you can be like the prophet Jonah who ran and hid from God. See, there's no mountain too high that God cannot get to, no spot too dark that God cannot bring into light. God already knows your story. He knows your past. He knows what water pot you're carrying. And so it's time to leave that thing where it is and be consumed with the thirst for the living water. Jesus exposes this woman for who she is. She's an outcast. She's an outcast socially because she's a woman. She's an outcast religiously because she's a Samaritan. And she's an outcast among her own people because of her past and her life of five failed marriages. The guilt of sin that she brings with her every time she comes to the well. But Jesus is willing to bring that to light. Willing to expose her past life, her sin. Fling this bridge across that vast chasm that separates them Because he wants to make her into a worshiper. From outcast to obedient. And that's what he wants for you and I. And because this is the attitude that Jesus has, you and I must respond with the same compassion towards others. And so this is my exhortation to the church this morning. Those who are believers in Christ, hear this. There should be no hint of racial prejudice among us. No passive jokes, no rude comments. See, instead of drawing a greater divide in race relations, you and I as believers in the gospel for the sake of the gospel should rather seek out racial reconciliation. And the same's true of sexism. And if I can speak to the men, men be men of God. Treat all women with dignity and respect as prized and treasured possessions of our great God. And women... Do the same towards men. Don't make them all out to be pigs and animals. Have respect for them. For they too are the prized possessions of our Creator God. See, this should be our attitude toward men and women alike. Toward individuals of a different race. An attitude of mutual respect. And why? Why this? Well, because we're wanting to point people to the living water, we can't put up any kind of barrier that would block them uh, block us from showing them the love of Christ and pointing them to the living water. But this morning, if you felt like an outcast, a stranger in your own home, you're beaten, you're worn out, you're tired, you're alone, you're weary, you thirst for something that has a lasting value. You're an outcast at your work. You, you sit in your break room all alone. You're outcast in the world. You've been told you're not good enough. You're not worth it. You won't achieve it. You're not smart enough. You have nowhere else to go, nowhere else to turn, no one else to go to. You felt like an outsider all your life, cast outside from friends and family, people close to you. See, if this water pot that you're carrying has just become too heavy for you to keep carrying, hear this. Jesus is offering you living water. A well springing up to everlasting life one where you will never thirst again. And I say this morning with the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. And it is without cost that this offer of salvation is made. And the reason it's without cost is because the cost has already been paid. It was paid once and for all. It was paid in full. It was paid not with gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Jesus at Calvary. It was paid on the cross where God put on Jesus the full wrath and penalty owed to all mankind. It was paid when Jesus humbled Himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I love what Romans 5 and 8 says. It said that God demonstrated His own love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died. Now, I don't want you to miss something here. While we were still sinners. God knew our story. God knows our story. He knows our past. He knows our burdens. Whatever it may be, he knows those things. He knows that we've broken his laws, his precepts, his commands, his decrees. He knows that. And even knowing those things while we were still sinners... He sent his son Jesus to die. See, God is holy. He's pure. He's righteous. Everything he does is good. You and I, we're not. You and I can identify with the woman in the story because there's this vast chasm that has separated you and I from the living God. And that vast chasm is our sin, our disobedience, our breaking of God's law, our wrong that we've done to him. But but God moved by his love for us while we were still sinners, while we were still far from God. Sin is one and only Son, who is God, who is fully man, so we're able to identify with him. He lives the perfect life that you and I could never live. And then he goes to Calvary, to the cross, where he gives up his life. And in doing so, he flings this bridge Across this vast chasm that has separated you and I from God. Salvation. You and I don't have to work to accomplish it anymore. It, 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 there's hope. Because Jesus has reached out. He's moved all heaven to, to restore a relationship with us. While we were still sinners. Christ died. He died for the ungodly. The most wicked, vile, and wretched of people. And he died for the outcast. So if there be any who thirst this morning for the living water that Jesus offers, come, receive this water of life without cost. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you are holy, that you are righteous, that you are pure. We also thank you that you're good, that you're God of mercy and compassion, a God of grace. That You knew our story. You know our story. You know our sin. You know where we've done You wrong. And yet, moved by Your love for us, You sent Your one and only Son, Jesus, who made redemption, He made salvation possible. And we thank You for that. And God, I pray this morning that your spirit work in this room, that he would convict hearts, that there be any who do not know you, who have not yet tasted of the living water that you offer. I pray that that person would come and receive the water of life without cost. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for redemption, salvation. We thank you for the grave we thank you for an empty grave and it's in the name of the risen lord that we pray amen